You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. One summer, not long ago, I was at the desk for uh, the childcare check-in at a resort in Idaho, and there was a woman standing in line in front of me, uh, uh, dressed in black, high heels, thick New York City accent, and uh, she was getting kind of sideways with the young adult who was on the other side of the desk, was wearing you know, a little down vest and trying to be as polite as he possibly could. And I don't know what the problem was, but she was getting all kind of ratcheted up, and the room was filling with anxiety, and I, I could hear her saying something like, you know, we called two months ago, and the name should be on the list somewhere, and my husband can't come back until two. And, and uh, what the guy on the other side of the counter said uh, that diffused the whole situation was just brilliant. He just had this little gesture with his hand and it stopped her talking. He took a deep breath. He smiled at her and he said, ma'am, you're in Idaho. <laughs> and she goes, oh, <laughs> Oh, that's right. I'm on vacation, aren't I? Oh, this isn't Brooklyn, is it? Oh, I'm not in the world of all my anxieties. I'm in the world of rest. And somehow in this space, I don't know how it happens, things just work out. And she could see it on his face. And the anxieties were gone. Now, what he did was so brilliant because he didn't move her an inch, but in another sense, he moved her in eternity. He moved her from the world of all of her concerns into the world of peace with just a few words. Now, I tell you that story because I believe that's what Jesus did in in a room in the first century. And frankly, I believe that's what Jesus can do today in this room. With just a few humble words, he can take us out of that world of anxiety and move us into his world. I'm going to tell you what he said. This was on the eve of his crucifixion. He gathered his followers in an upper room and there was a long conversation. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. And in that conversation, his disciples were peppering him with these anxious questions and all the problems and everything's going wrong and you're telling us you're leaving, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus just looks at him and he says, friends, you're in me. You're in me. That's what this passage is all about. I want to invite you to open up and and see those words in his own words in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, and then then verse 11. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. There's a black book somewhere around you, in front of you, or underneath you. And uh, open up to page 878. There you'll find John 15, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 11. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. These are the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Now let's go down to verse 11. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I want to briefly reflect with you on this passage, what you just read, and I want to draw out three implications. But my main point is this, fruit follows intimacy with Jesus. Fruit follows intimacy with Jesus. These three implications, I call them very quickly, a life-giving privilege, a life-giving promise, and a life-giving practice. First, a life-giving privilege. Jesus says, you will bear much fruit, which is his way of saying, your life is going to make an eternal impact. It matters. What a privilege. Your life will matter. You may not be able to see it, but Jesus can see it. See, after all, when a farmer plants a vine in a vineyard, he does so for a purpose. He wants the fruit. He has this vision of uh, wine on the table and, more importantly, the occasion for which wine is the appropriate drink, celebration, joy. And so Jesus knows the Father has made you a vineyard because your life's going to issue forth in joy, in celebration. That's why you're here. You will bear much fruit. What a privilege. Israel, as a nation, had been called to the same privilege. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's making a little bit of a contrast. It raises the question, well, what other vine do you have in mind? And those in that room in the first century understood. Israel is the other vine. The Old Testament speaks of Israel as God's vineyard, God's vine. In Psalm 80, for example, uh, the Lord says to his people, I, I called you out of Egypt as a vine. I planted you and rooted you in the soil to bear fruit. God, the farmer, had taken Israel and said, I love all nations. I'm the creator of all people. I want to bless all people. And the way I'm choosing to do it is by calling one family blessed to be a blessing for all. I'm going to make you abundant in my presence so that out of that abundance you will have overflow to offer the nations. They'll come streaming to you when they see the way that you live your life. And if you want to know what is the fruit, well, then you go back to the Old Testament and you read, for example, in the prophets. Isaiah 5, 7 says this. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Okay, we got that part. And the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. Okay, Israel and Judah, the north and the southern uh, tribes are his vineyard are his pleasant planting. And then we get the fruit. It says he expected, the Lord expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, but heard a cry. So here we get a description of what God's fruit looks like in their lives, and I think in ours too. Justice and righteousness. Justice is where decisions are made the way God would make them. Righteousness is where lives look like the life of God, his character. His decisions and his character were to be reflected in Israel. So that when they live together, they live like people who are made for reconciliation, who offer hospitality to the aliens and the immigrants among them, who alleviate the burdens of the poor, 
who live not like all the other nations who go to war to resolve the difficulties, but who live with the very shalom and peace of God. And everyone around, all the neighbors were meant to go, wow, how can I get me some of that? And then they would come to faith in this one true God, the creator of the universe, and they would rejoice and joy, and that's the fruit. Jesus says, it's still game on, my friends. This is still his program. He says in verse 16, I, you didn't choose me. I chose you and I chose you. I pointed you to go and bear fruit. He's looking at those who are his followers. It's not just Israel now. It's anybody who would follow Jesus Christ has a life that's going to have an internal impact because God has called you. Now, the problem with Israel is oftentimes the problem with us. For them, they confuse this calling and this high privilege with an occupation. Let me just take a minute on this. A calling is something that God intends you to do. An occupation is kind of what everybody else is doing. So Israel looked around and they saw the other nations and they said, well, we want a king like them. Well, we want an army like them. Well, we want to be like them. And they lost their distinctiveness. They got so wrapped up in this idea of being a nation and everything that's required to be a nation that they were just sort of assimilated into all their neighbors. And they lost the calling. So at that point, an occupation became a preoccupation. And I want to tell you, that's where all the anxiety comes from. A couple years ago, there was a transition in my life, and I, my job's not a big job, but it was bigger than me for sure, and it continues to be. And the transition that happened in my life is before that point, I saw myself as called to be a pastor at UPC. I thought that was my calling. And I do believe God called me to be a pastor here, but you know what? That's not my calling, that's my occupation. I mean, you could describe pastor at UPC like a job description. Right, all these duties, uh, really cool stuff like committee meetings, you know, and preaching sermons and uh, other duties as assigned. That that's the occupation. And if that's everything for me, it's going to become my preoccupation, and I, of course, I'm going to be reduced to a bundle of nerves every single week because I have five thousand employers. At that level, I'm in trouble. And I realized, no, through the help of a friend, actually, who said, "No, that's just your job. That's just your occupation. What's your calling?" And I said, oh, my calling actually is, is to bring Jesus to people and bring people to Jesus. That's my calling. My occupation is incidental. My occupation is just contextual. It's just a place where I have an opportunity, special opportunity to do, to fulfill my calling. What about you? I mean, I know you've got an occupation, but more importantly, you've got a calling. Every one of you. Whether you're a student or you're a retiree, whether you're an at-home dad or an executive, whether you're a researcher or a realtor, you have an opportunity to use that occupation as part of your greater calling. And I, people do that here, and I love that. I mean, you're on the bus and you're praying for people on the bus or... You know, right now you're in a phase of life where you just play a lot of golf and you have access to a golf club and you, you invite your mail carrier to come and play with you so that you can listen to her and understand what's going on in her life. Or you're in business and you've tried to figure out how can I get some excess capacity in my shipping operation so that at the same cost I can also get some free medical supplies into places that are underserved. I mean, I love that about you and that's engaging your calling in the place of your occupation. And it brings joy. So the question we have to ask ourselves here with this first uh, implications, life-giving privilege, is, hmm, what am I uniquely doing that is adding value to the lives of the people around me? Another way to say that is, if I just suddenly disappeared, I was beamed up, you know, to the Starfleet Enterprise one day, how would I be missed? 
Or more importantly, how would God be missed? Because there's no one making his decisions in my world anymore. Or there's no one reflecting his character in my world anymore. What would be this? This is a question that you need to ask individually. Your small group needs to ask it. What would happen if your small group were no longer in Ballard and it's suddenly gone? Would the neighbors notice? And why? Uh, we need to ask it of our satellite uh, congregation down at South Lake Union. What would be happening if they weren't there running cacao, the, co- the chocolate bar, and engaging in conversations and, and using their space as venues for the city? Uh, what would happen to U- University of Washington if we weren't here as a university? You know, my greatest fear is they wouldn't even notice, right? Uh, so ask this question, and then we have this incredible privilege, and now all of a sudden I'm looking at your faces and you're going, George, I came in here feeling busy, and now you've just told me I have to do even more stuff, so you've actually just increased my anxiety. This is not helping, right? Because I'm already stretched just trying to make ends work. And now you're saying Jesus is telling me i got more stuff to do? No, wait a minute. Let me move on to this second implication, because Jesus has a life-giving promise. Which is this, in verse 4 he says, I abide in you. The word abide means to remain, live, make my home in. Jesus says, I make my home in you. And at this point, you'll see you're in Jesus. And this doesn't increase anxiety, it reduces anxiety because you're being redirected around from your, uh, from your own capacity to his capacity. Your life is being reframed, not in terms of your challenges, problems, or even opportunities, in terms of what can Jesus do inside me and with me and through me. So it's a great promise. And this passage lays it out so beautifully. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, What he's saying is, look, I never expected Israel to be the true vine. They were just pointing to me. So I can succeed where Israel has failed. I can fulfill everything that Israel was was to be about. It's okay. And, and, And when he says, I am the true vine, it also means that you're not the true vine. And that the fruit doesn't really come from you. It comes from him. He takes full responsibility. This is the word of grace that Jesus is speaking to his disciples in this room. Absolute, complete grace. He's saying, I have become a part of you. And you have become a part of me. We call this union with Christ. And if I could detain you all day, I would want to speak about nothing other than union with Christ. I want you to really meditate this week on what those three words mean, union with Christ, because this is at the heart of our first core experience of sharing hope. It's, it's being alive in Christ. So many people think that the gospel is about being alive near Christ, or even being alive like Christ, or even being alive with Christ. Those three things can all be true, but none of them gets to the depth of grace that a life in Christ gets to. Let me just give you a quick illustration of this. I'm a jogger. I run oftentimes. I've noticed about four trees that are on my run. Big, tall, 40-foot trees, very green, lush with leaves. Well, one day I get close enough to these trees where I actually see that one of them is dead. And all of its foliage is really an ivy vine that has come up and actually choked out the life of the tree. Have you ever seen that? Where you see a tree and you go, that's not a tree. That's just an overgrown, undisciplined ivy vine. And I thought, I don't want to be that. How often we think that to be a Christian means just to look like a Christian or to look like Jesus. Or to do the things that Christians are supposed to do. Or to even do the things that Jesus did. You can look that way and do those things and have nothing going on inside of you. No inner vitality. 
And Jesus is offering something so much more. He says, I'm, I'm not concerned with what you look like. I just, I just want to know you're connected to me because I abide in you. And it's my life, my vitality that issue forth in and through you. Union with Christ. See, it, the branch gets its sap from the vine. So Jesus is in us. And the, vine is a, the branch is a part of the vine. The vine isn't just the trunk. The vine is the whole plant. When Jesus says, you're a, a branch, he's saying, you're in me also. This gets us into some head-spinning theology. And I, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep trying to articulate this. Here's the way I want to do it today. It's about the Trinity. And if you think about the Trinity this way, and I know a lot of us go, I don't get the Trinity. And that's okay. But look, you don't have to understand it. You just have to believe it. Uh, <laughs> picture a triangle for just a moment. And put the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Father's preoccupation is to love the Son completely. And the Son's preoccupation is to obey the Father completely. And the Holy Spirit's preoccupation is to take you and graft you into the Son. You got to get that. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means to have been taken up into this Trinitarian mystery, this eternal world of, of love and joy between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, now you're in there. The reason I know that is, from this passage is that when Jesus uses the word abide, he's already been using it. We don't realize that. You've got to zoom out a little bit and see the context in which Jesus offers these words. In John 14, he's using the word abide and he's using it of the relationship between the Father and the Son. For, for example, verse 10, he says, the Father dwells in me. And that's the same word, abide. The Father abides in me. And he says, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. He keeps repeating it. And the disciples finally go, I don't understand it, but I see that you believe it's true, and so I'm going to believe it's true. And then when Jesus turns right around and says, oh, by the way, in the same way that the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. And all of a sudden, I've been swept up into the Trinitarian mystery, and I don't understand it, but, I'm thinking, but I think I'm going to believe it. Because Jesus promises. It's a life-giving promise. And recharacterize it puts me in this whole other world in which love and grace and joy are the principal values. So um, I've had a very anxious week this week, and maybe you have too. Um, at, 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 at some point, though, you and I have to stop and say, which world am I in? Where are the hard places in your calling? What questions do you have about yourself for which you can find no answers? And what ways do you find yourself shriveling up and drying and becoming cold and lifeless? It's exactly in these places that we need to reach out again and receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I told you of this couple that was struggling with the death of their son, suicidal death of their son. And they said, you know, even here, in the garden of God's grace, even a broken tree can bear fruit. Now, I know that's me. I invite you to see yourself there too. Let me say that again. In the garden of God's grace, even a broken tree bears fruit. This is life-giving promise. I abide in you. I am not leaving you. I am sticking with you. I get it that you'll leave me. I get it 
that you won't stick with me, but I am sticking with you. That's Jesus' life-giving promise. Well, you might ask, finally, if that's the case, what do I have to do? I mean, he's bearing all the fruit. It's his life. Shouldn't I just sit back? Well, no. There is, finally, a life-giving practice. There is an imperative here in this passage. There is a command. There is a great invitation that Jesus offers in this room, and it is this, abide with me. It's that simple. He says, well, what I need you to do now is just stick with me. Remain with me. That's what faith is all about. Make it your highest priority to become intimate with me. To have that same kind of intimate knowledge that I have with the Father and the Father has with me and that I have with you. Now I want you to know who I am on an intimate, interpersonal level. Abide with me. Make your home with me. I don't know if you caught this last Wednesday, um, a researcher at University of Washington published the results of a study, and it got a lot of, of, of press. His name is Andrew Meltzoff. He was the uh, co-researcher on the project UW Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, and they had wired up babies, don't try this at home, uh, with electrodes, and they were studying the electromagnetic currents in the cranium when the baby is watching an adult play. So mom or dad, you know, moves the hand to, or the foot to, to play with a toy. And they're noticing that the same areas, the child's brain firing just as the areas in the adult's brain. Fascinating stuff. You know what that tells me? You are wired to become like someone you're intimate with. A child will become like her mother, her father. The brain is just wired to do that. The more intimate you are with somebody, the more you'll be like them. That's why so many of you look like your dogs. Um, it's scientific basis. It's been discovered by University of Washington this week. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, Jesus didn't have UW in his day. It's, it's a shame. I don't know how anyone could get by it. He didn't have it. But what he did have uh, was plants. And, you know, he, he was basically saying, you know, I see the seed and, and we would say the seed has all the DNA and it travels up through the stalk and it goes out into the branch and it bears fruit. You know, there's this kind of intimate connection between the branch and the vine. And so many of us focus on the wrong end of the transaction. We're looking at the fruit and we're going, I got to make it happen. And Jesus is going, no, I want you to connect to me. See, because I'm the source. I want you to be intimate with me. And when you know me, really know me then I have access to you and my fruit will appear a friend of mine in uh, Los Angeles named Chuck Woodworth he's not with us anymore but he, like your brother he made a real impact on my life I love him dearly he's this kind of guy he was, he was like a short guy he was, he was old um, and he had this white crew cut hair and he always wore sneakers wherever he went. And he drove a Mustang that was sort of souped up and I kept, sometimes I'd see him as an old man and then some really immature kid and I love that about him. And he, but the thing about Chuck is he loved God's word. He, he made a life out of studying it because through God's word he was getting to know his savior Jesus Christ in a beautiful way. He taught uh, public school in LA Unified School District for 35 years. It was all he could do to crawl to the finish line and retire. But he wasn't giving up on Jesus. It was clear that he was going deeper uh, with Jesus. Um, what he did next was he, 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 he loved missions. He knew he couldn't be a missionary at that stage in his life. And so he went to barber school. 
learn how to cut hair. And he, he went and he took uh, the third or the fourth chair in a barber shop in a tough area of town, a lot of Latinos. So he learned Spanish and he's giving haircuts to gang members in LA and just giving witness to Jesus and getting to know them and listening to them. And I want to tell you, when Chuck passed away, one day he, 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 something happened in his head and he fell down and he hit the ground in Santa Monica. And he just, it took him a week to die. But in, in fact, that week, uh, you know, they had to take part of his skull off because of the swelling. And I would come and visit Chuck as frequently as I could. Every time I went, the room was filled with Latinos. And they weren't coming to visit like I was to come and go. They were staying. It was a vigil. They were giving witness to something in Chuck that they had, they had received through Chuck. And you know what it was? It was the fruit of Jesus Christ. They couldn't let it go. I did the memorial service for Chuck. And uh, I got an email from his sister, I don't know, a week or two later. And she said... I want you to see this picture because those friends of Chuck Woodworth came up to Bel Air Presbyterian Church and they sat in those pews and they saw someone in the program had a photograph of Chuck and they took it home and they painted it and they framed it and they put this big painting in the barber shop and they put it behind Chuck's chair and no one is sitting in that chair now. It was like 42, you know? We're not going to use that chair anymore. It's almost like Jesus is sitting in that chair. So don't don't you sit there. I want to tell you, it's a simple man living a simple life, giving glorious witness to Jesus and his fruits coming out. And Jesus will do that in your life. Jesus will do that in my life as we abide in him. Now, it is a discipline. You need to make space in your life to get to know Jesus better. It's like any other relationship. I mean, if, you're, if you want some dating advice, here it is. It's the same as discipleship advice. Uh, when Ann and I were dating, this is, a mutual friend said this. It's going to happen, George. Don't worry about it. This is the formula. It's mathematical. Time plus talk plus trust equals intimacy. And it worked. And it's, and it's the same with Jesus. Time plus talk plus trust equals intimacy. Final set of questions. How are you getting to know Jesus? How has he become real in, in your life? What are some of the practices that create space for him so that you can be intimate with him? Fruit follows intimacy with Jesus. That's my point. Remember why Jesus tells us this. It was that little verse 11. He says, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. So take a deep breath and let your shoulders relax because Jesus says to you, my friend, I'm in you and you are in me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we confess we don't believe so much of this, but we throw ourselves upon your grace and say, help our unbelief Empower us by your spirit. Connect us to a living, conscious, vital, vibrant, aware relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love him. We love you. And, and we want others to see your beauty 
in our life together. We pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.